Hello, my name's Jane Dacre. Welcome to this Medical Women Talking podcast. Medical Women Talking is a series of recordings of informal interviews with a range of women doctors from different specialties and backgrounds who've had successful careers in medicine. I'm a proud physician and have had the privilege of a very fulfilling career. As I get older and have reflected on my own journey, I've become increasingly passionate about helping other women to achieve their potential in medicine. Combining life and a career can be challenging, and it sometimes feels extremely difficult to keep going. The women in these conversations have all found a way to thrive and have achieved great things. I hope that you'll be inspired by their stories. The podcasts are available to download in any order so that you can listen and be inspired whilst doing other things. Happy listening. Today, I'm talking to Professor Geeta Menon. She's had an extraordinary career which has spanned both India and the UK. She reached consultant status in India, but then came to this country and had to start all over again. She's gone through several career grades and is now working as a postgraduate dean for NHS England. Geeta, welcome and thank you very much for joining me. Thank you very much, Jane, for inviting me to um, uh, talk about my career. Um, so I actually um, was born and brought up in India, in Western India, in a place called Gujarat, a state of Gujarat in Ahmedabad. So I did all my primary and secondary schooling there and um, always wanted to become a doctor. And so, so how so, old were you when you decided to become a doctor? That's something I'm asking people. It's surprisingly yeah, I, young. Yeah, I, I think probably the age of eight or nine. And that's just stayed with me. It's, it's interesting because my neither of my parents are doctors. I'm probably the first doctor in the family. Gosh. But it was just, um, you know, our family physician used to come to, you know, in those days, we used to have family physicians either come home if we were too ill or we could go there. And he was such a nice guy. I mean, you know, and every time, you know, Dr. Pandit came, he could just get rid of my illness so quickly. And I was like, you know, that's what I want to be. I just want to do that. Fantastic. So I think, yes. And yeah. So, so, so that's, yeah. You went to medical school? Yeah. yeah Sorry, so, I yeah, interrupted exactly. you. You carry on. No, no, that's fine. So, yeah, so I was lucky to get into medical school. It's quite difficult in, in, in India. In Ahmedabad, there are two medical schools. I went to one of them. And whilst I was in my second year, we had our clinical placement in ophthalmology. And I remember going into theater and seeing this um, female surgeon operate on a patient for cataract surgery. And that just kind of, I was hooked on it. I just loved ophthalmology. I loved the way, you know, the intricacies of surgery, but at the same time, the clinical um, uh, bits as well. So it had both medical and surgical aspects to the job. So I decided that is what I wanted to do. But um, it's not very easy to get into ophthalmology because you only had like two seats in the college that I was studying in, two postgraduate seats. So, you know, once I finished my medical school, I remember my parents, friends sitting down with me and saying I should take pediatrics. And, you know, that's much easier because there are more seats, you know, and you wouldn't be disappointed if you didn't get it. But I was absolutely sure that was the only thing I wanted to do. So I managed to get into ophthalmology. 
And I completed my training in ophthalmology. Whilst I was actually doing my training, I got married. And um, uh, my husband was training to do his to ra- ra- do radiology. He was doing postgraduate training in radiology uh, in a place near Bangalore. So we were quite, you know, we got married, but we had to kind of finish off our postgraduate training before we then settled down in Kerala. So I started working in a, a eye hospital there in Kerala. Uh, quite a cultural shift from going from Ahmedabad to Kerala because Ahmedabad is one of those states which has prohibition, which means you're not allowed to drink or sell alcohol. So it's very, very safe, you know. So you go, as a girl, I used to be, you know, as a female, I could go out, out to 12 in the night and be really safe. Uh, whereas Kerala was absolutely the opposite. Um, everything started to kind of shut down by seven o'clock in the evening. So in this um, hospital that I uh, worked in, uh, one of the things that was happening was the retinal patients who had retinal detachment surgery and needed surgery would come and they would have to then go to uh, the neighboring state to have surgery because there was no retinal surgery available in Kerala in those days. So my the director of my institute was very keen that I go and specialize and do a fellowship in retinal surgery. So um, I then went back to Ahmedabad. Again, I was lucky to get a place because initially when I was finishing off my um, um, postgraduate training in ophthalmology, I remember this professor who was an, ex, you know, the vitreoretinal surgery um, giant in, in that in, in that space at that time come to me and say, oh, Geeta, you know what? I think you should do a VR fellowship with me. Um, and I, at that time, or, or I was, would think of, you know, I finished my postgraduate degree and then go and join my husband. So I said, no, no, I'm not interested. And so when I called him up to say, oh, I want to actually do a fellowship. I remember him first, his first response was, I'm sorry, I've got a waiting list now. And, you know, <laughs> you can come in five years time. And then, of course, I explained to him what was happening. These people were going blind. And, you know, it was really a sad thing because they couldn't afford going to the neighboring state. So he said, OK, if somebody drops out, then I'll let you know. So in 1989, I went and did my vitreoretinal fellowship with Dr. Nautpal, Professor Nautpal. Um, in Ahmedabad, uh, and then came back and set up vitreoretinal surgery in uh, the hospital I worked in. Um, and uh, it was an interesting journey because there weren't very many female vitreoretinal surgeons in those days. So it was, um, you know, people used to always look at me and say, why are you training to do, do a vitreoretinal surgery? I mean, you know, you're a female. Why don't you go and do ocular pathology? That's more, more your, you know, what females should be doing. But anyway, I survived and thrived in that place. Uh, I didn't give up. I went and then, um, you know, like I said, set, up, set it up in Kerala. And um, I thought I was living a dream because I was, you know, doing a lot of research. I was, you know, presenting lots of papers at conferences. And um, then suddenly... Um, we had a bit of a tragedy where I lost lost my baby. So things then started to kind of not be very great because um, my patients and others didn't know that I had lost the baby. So they would come and ask, oh, is it a boy or a girl kind of thing? And I just felt I needed a change. My brother was in the UK at that time. So he said, oh, you know what? You need to come here. 
you need to come and, you know, work over here and do, do the fellowship exams. It's really, you know, something that would really be great for your career. So um, one of my professors had done a Commonwealth fellowship in the UK. So she did uh, help sponsor me to the Royal College of Ophthalmologists because in those days there was this double sponsorship scheme. So she sponsored me to come and work. Um, and so I got a job at Luton and Dunstable Hospital. Um, it was a very interesting um, period at that time. So being from being a consultant with your retinal surgeon in India, I came down to becoming an, a senior house officer, as they were called, an SHO in ophthalmology at Luton and Dunstable Hospital. And uh, the other bits of my journey there was also interesting because I came to the country on my own. Uh, my husband had to stay back to sort his visa out. So he and my son joined us, joined me only a month after I um, came to the country. So I was on my own. In India, I led an absolutely sheltered life. Um, I, you know, got a chauffeur, a cook. I had never started a bank account in my life, let alone actually look for a house. So I had to do all of those things whilst actually trying to get my head around working as an SHO in a very new environment. And I remember the first clinic. I'll never forget that, where you're sitting in the clinic and you're told that you've got 17 patients to see and there's a phone constantly ringing from where, where GPs are trying, and optometrists are trying to contact you at the same time. Um, and um, I think the thing that sticks out in my memory of that period in my life was uh, standing at the payphone. In those days, you had to use pound coins and trying to talk to my son after I finished my clinic because at the time difference, um, it was quite hard to kind of find the time to actually talk to him when he was awake. And wait, you keep talking until the pound coins ran out. <laughs> and Oops. that was really hard. That was how, really how hard. How old was he? How old was he? He was, he was <clears throat> seven. He was seven. Yeah, he was six, actually, six. And, and the, the, I'm really sorry to hear about the, the baby that you lost. So that was a, a, it was after it was, after the baby was born. Oh, yes, that's Gosh. right. So I, I, it was a premature delivery at eight months. And um, yeah, and it was Gosh. quite, yeah, it was quite So difficult. to come to the UK after that, leaving your family and also essentially having a bereavement from a consultant job as well must have been so tough. Yeah, but I think I, I didn't actually find that I had made the decision to come to the UK. So I wasn't in that space where I was thinking, oh, my God, I'm now having to do all these things. And at times it was interesting. It was interesting more than anything else because you were actually assisting a your retinal surgeon. And, um, you know, and, and it was interesting. She the, the, the Vitorinal surgeon I was working with was a female from New Zealand. So she was a New Zealander and she, she was quite um, engaging in trying to see what my opinion was while she was doing surgery. So that was quite okay. I mean, it wasn't, of course it was hard going, but it's, I only did the SHO job for six months because then they decided that I had, you know, I, uh, they gave me a registrar post. They said, you've got all the qualities you need to do, you know take on a registrar job. So then I became a registrar uh, there. Um, but um, then, of course, I again um, decided to change change tactics because um, my son was 
getting to that age where he needed to get to secondary school. And um, what I had got uh, was this uh, Richard Retinal Fellowship in Liverpool under one of the very famous VR surgeons at that time. And um, at the same time, I also had this job that had come up at Frimley Park Hospital, which was much more of a substantive job where you can stay in one place. Because, you know, moving around with our son and then my husband was working in London at that time. So me going to Liverpool was never going to happen. So I decided to take a step back from my career and um, take up the specialty doctor, the staff grade job, as it was called, at Frimley. And um, I remember my brother not talking to me for a whole week because he was so upset. My brother, I must uh, add, he's a... a um, hepatobiliary surgeon, a transplant surgeon. So, you know, he was absolutely, he said, how can you do this? You know, you've just kind of ruined your career. Why are you going into that job? There is no kind of progression in that space. And you're giving up your registrar job to do that. And I said, look, I need to give my son that stability he needs. You know, it's really important. So, um, I, and I don't, I, I, till today, I don't have any regrets about Having taken that step back for six years, I think that really helped my son to get to where he is today. And I'm very proud to say he's an intervention radiologist, a consultant at Portsmouth. Wow. So, so you know, and at that time, uh, what I did, I was, I was in a department with only male consultants. So that was interesting. But I must say that they were all absolutely supportive and brilliant. I was really lucky. Frimley was really a great place to be in that kind of middle grade space. They gave me the freedom to do what I wanted to do. And um, it, year down the line, um, they called me in to say that, you know, they thought I wasn't, you know, working to my potential here, that, you know, I was meant for greater things and they were ready to give me, get me a registrar job so I could go back into training and become a consultant. And I said, no, I didn't want to do that. I'm very happy in this post, you know, uh, because this is what I need at this point in time. And then uh, what happened was that um, we had the uh, 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 macular degeneration, which is my specialty area, medical retina, had started getting a new treatment called photodynamic therapy. So I, my, one of the consultants basically uh, said to me that, why don't you go and actually um, look at what that it requires and the training it requires. So I was then um, the person who set it up in Frimley. So I set up photodynamic therapy. It was We were one of the first NHS hospitals to actually set it up in the NHS because most places were setting it up privately. And that then gave me that niche that I needed. And so I then you know, set up the whole of the medical retina service at Frimley in my staff grade job. Um, it was very interesting because I had was the person who had trained in that. So I was running training programs nationally and I would have consultants come to me and say, you know, not listen to my opinion because they were like, you know, you're not a consultant, you're a staff grade. So why are you telling me what that fluorescein angiogram should look like? But you know what, what was happening on the other side was my white ally consultants were acting as allies. I didn't know at that time that the white ally thing, you know, but um, James Govan, who used to be, you know, very prominent figure in 
it, it, in, in ophthalmology, um, he used to come and say, you know, ask me doubt in front of all these people. So, you know, it was like, you know, if this person is the expert, she knows what she's talking about. So, you know, he was kind of trying to true to these people who were trying to kind of put me down. So um, it, it's, it's probably along the way, it's helped me develop a lot of resilience, I must say, from all the different, you know, things. And um, then I think um, it was in 2002 that they decided to make me a locum consultant at Frimley and then pushed me to put in for the equivalence training. So um, did you do the whole Caesar route? Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, so, yeah. So you didn't they you didn't have to go back and take Royal College exams and things. You got No, I'd already taken the, the exams. Route. Yeah, so sorry, I had already had taken the exams. And right. um so I had done my FRCS Edinburgh um exams in as soon as I joined Frimley actually. And oh. um they looked at all my experience that I had in India and uh, decided that I, it was equivalent to what a, a CCT is in the oh, UK. So, so and, that's an uh, example of that working well then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the only thing is, Jane, that, you know, in those days, the reason I, I was really reluctant to actually put it in was in those days, most people were, most applications were rejected. So, you know, they would say, oh, you know, there's this problem, that problem. Very few applications would go through. So I was really lucky, I must say, to get that. And then my ex-chief exec, uh, Sir Andrew Morris, then I remember him coming down to the eye clinic to congratulate me when I got my CC Caesar. And then he said, okay, now we need to create a substantive post for you. And that's exactly what he did. Wow. So, you know, so, so yeah, so I was really, really lucky. And uh, yeah, so that's how I became so, a so consultant. You've talked a lot about um, the ophthalmology side of things, and then you've mentioned that you did training, but now you're a postgraduate dean. So uh, how did that transition happen? So I was, so once I became a consultant, I was quite busy with, you know, doing all the clinical stuff. And the then DME at Frimley came to me one day, um, uh, Dr. Alison Keatley. She came to me and she said, Geeta, um, the foundation program director job role in uh, firmly is coming up. We heard so much about uh, trainees coming and telling us how good you are uh, as an educational and clinical supervisor. So I'd like you to consider applying for that role. And I was like, um, I was already like inundated with the clinical work I was doing because I was in doing, you know, setting up diabetic retinopathy screening in the region. I was, you know, setting up the whole macular service with all the new treatments, etc. So when she said that, I thought, okay, let me think about it. And I love teaching. I absolutely always loved, you know, training and teaching people. So um, I applied for that role and I got it. And that's when I realized I absolutely loved, you know, working with the foundation trainees and, you know, really getting them to understand about the, the different faculties, the journeys, et cetera. So when Alison retired, um, I applied for the DME, Director of Medical Education role, and got that. So a year down the line, they, the dean, uh, postgraduate dean of Kent Surrey and Sussex called me and said, Gita, we, you know, we are planning to separate from London and we want to set up a school of ophthalmology in KSS. And I want you to actually lead on it. 
So we are going to be putting out an advert for the head of school of ophthalmology. So um, do you want, you know, I would want you to apply, but I don't want you to give up your DME role. <laughs> so, um, so that's how I went into the he head of school. So I, but I still remember it was quite, it was quite, um, um, what should I say? It wasn't great at that time because all the college tutors in London had a meeting where they sat down and decided that, you know, they couldn't understand how I, an international medical graduate who has no idea about how training in the UK happens, could actually head the School of Ophthalmology. And I only came to know about it through one of my friends whose, whose college tutor basically came to her and said, oh, you know what? Somebody called this Gita Menon is applying to be the head of the School of Ophthalmology. Can you imagine what a car crash it's going to be? Because she doesn't even know how training happens in the country. So it was upsetting. Of course, it was upsetting to hear things like that. So that but sounds like open discrimination, doesn't it? Yes. I know. And, and oh, you know, can you imagine, I mean, a whole group of them sitting there, of course, they were, you know, part of me knows that they were all upset about the separation. They didn't want the KSS to set up their own school. So that was there as a part of that thing. But, um, and so, but anyway, I decided, you know, there are people who think I can do it. So I, I need to try it. So I applied for it and I got the job. Um, and, um, and I, my, my way of dealing with these kinds of situations is usually by saying that, you know, I will show these people with my actions. If they think that I'm not good enough, I'll show them with my actions that this is what I can do. And that's exactly what I did. I set up a, the School of Ophthalmology, which actually had the best induction program for SC1 trainees, which was then taken by the Royal College across the country. So, you know. I, I thought, and so then um, uh, the associate dean for uh, Surrey came up, which is then when I went to apply for that. And um, while I was the associate dean, the postgraduate dean in South London came up. And I, I remember, and uh, at that time, Graham Dewars, he was the postgraduate dean for KSS at that time, calling me to his office and saying, Gita, I think you should apply for this role. And I was like, but Graham, it's in London. I've never worked in London. How can I apply for that? And he said, no, I think, you know, um, it, it's it's a good opportunity and you should give it, you know, a try. And I remember ringing up uh, Andrew because Andrew used to be kind of my mentor. And I said, Andrew, what should I do? And he was like, Gita, is this in your five-year plan? I said, yeah, it's in my five-year plan, but not now, you know, where you suddenly have to give up a lot of your clinical work and, you know, go into education. He said, no, these opportunities only come very, uh, so don't come very frequently. And important thing I want to understand from you is, are you saying you're, you're not applying because you think you don't get, you won't get the job? Because that's the wrong reason, you know? <laughs> <Gosh. actually. laughs> so I remember then coming to the interview and, and Jane, I'll never forget that, you see? So, you know, I've got this little badge here saying leading woman. Yeah. So. I, I ended up coming quite early, as as is the case. I'm always early for things like this. And I was sitting there. It was a very cold February morning. And somebody came and gave me one of these badges. And I said, oh, what is this? So he said, oh, you know, we are celebrating 150 years of women in education. And I was a nervous, like, a, you know, I'm always a nervous, like, before interviews. I hate it. 
So I said, oh, wow. So he said, if you want to learn more about it, we've got all these posters just at the back. And so I said, okay. So I went to look at those posters. And in there was the, were these three women, one in a sari, one in a, was a Japanese costume and another one in, I think, from Iran. These were three people who had come 150 years ago and, you know, studied here. And I thought, my God, if those people can do it 150 years ago, Gita, come on, you can get this interview. Uh And of course you did. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, so that's my journey to the postgraduate dean. Brings you you back up to date. So just a a, a couple of questions. So, um, You've moved around a lot and you've obviously been very passionate about your career, but you've also got a family. So how does that work? How do you make that work? Because I think a lot of people who listen to these podcasts are struggling really to work work out how to make career and family sit alongside each other well. Yeah, so I think that the, the, the important thing is that I did take that step back for six years because I absolutely wanted to be for, there for my son. And I don't think I would have done it any differently in you know, going back again over that journey. I also have a, an amazing husband. I'm really lucky who's very supportive and absolutely supporting me in everything I do. That, that's important to have that family that, uh, you know, because family always comes first. That's what I always say. And even today now, I've got two grandchildren. And um, so, you know, even in my busy life, uh, when they are there, they take priority and I absolutely need to find time for them. Um, Life doesn't stop, does it? So you need to make sure that you don't miss out on all those moments um, with your with your family. Um, I'm lucky now that at the moment um, I, I took that six years step back and that has really helped me because now I have this is my time. This is a time that I can actually do what I want to do. And it does mean that I have to, you know, um, compress everything into the uh, into 10 years, into, you know, all of what I want to do. Research is something that I'm really passionate about as well. So I do, um, you know, still continue doing personal research as well as work in the NIHR. But I think family is important, Jane. And, you know, there are times when you have to take a step back from your career. and you know, you're obviously a role model for others. Um, what do you what would you say to those women coming through? Is there any message that, that you might want to give to women who are listening to this to inspire them? I think that um, if you actually have that grit, that passion and perseverance for what you want to do, then you'll always get there. Secondly, I always feel that you should take on things where you think you can make a difference because that really helps you. And, um, you know, never listen to somebody who tells you you can't do something just because you're a female. Yeah. Just actually make, let your actions speak for themselves. Don't go and argue with them. Don't do anything to say that, oh, you know, you're wrong. Just let your actions speak for themselves. And, and Gita, finally, who are your role models? Um, my gosh, I've got so many of them. Jane, you're one of them. <laughs> oh, no. Yes, you are. And I think, I think um, I, along, my, along the way, I've had a lot of people who have been 
amazing role models in my during my medical school, my you know postgraduate training. But all along, I think my mother is probably the most amazing role model I can ever have. She's one of those people. So re- I think I've learned all my resilience from her. She's just amazing. When yeah. Fantastic. Well, Geeta, that was a wonderful story. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you. Thank you, Jane. Thank you so much for asking me to do this. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. There are many more medical women talking in this series of podcasts. Please have a listen to some of the other inspiring women. You'll definitely find something to inspire you.